I'm Carl McCollman. I am Kevin Johnson. I'm Cassidy Hall, and we are Encountering Silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by listeners like you. Please visit www.patreon.com slash encountering silence. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be a part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. Sometimes to encounter silence, we must travel outside the recording studio to hear its rhythms and participate with it. When we do, we bring our basic recording devices to keep a record of that engagement, resulting in field recordings. These recordings all may vary in participants and content, surprising us in the variety of ways that silence speaks. This week, Cassidy Hall attended the gathering Voices for Peace in Toronto, Ontario. While there, she had the privilege of sitting down with peace activist and author Jim Forrest to listen to the silence that speaks with and through his life and work. Today on the Encountering Silence podcast, we are lucky enough to have with us Jim Forrest, author of numerous books including The Ladder of the Beatitudes, Praying with the Icons, Road to Emmaus, Living with Wisdom, which is a Thomas Merton biography, All is Grace, a Dorothy Day biography, and most recently, At Play in the Lion's Den, a biography and memoir of Daniel Berrigan. Jim is also a peace activist, um, and beyond being arrested for burning draft cards during the Vietnam War era, he founded the Catholic Peace Fellowship and joined the staff of the Catholic Worker Community with Dorothy Day, serving as managing editor. Many know Jim by way of his friends, including but not limited to, not limited to Thomas Merton, Dorothy Day, Dan Berrigan, Thich Nhat Hanh, and many more. But having spent just a few days with Jim already, it's hard to not count yourself among the list. His deep humility and sincere way of being has already taught me so much about listening, truly seeing, and deeply caring for my fellow human. Jim once wrote, Like arrows, words point but they are not the target. So forgive us as we embark in a conversation with words, words that will undoubtedly constantly miss the target. Jim, welcome to the Encountering Silence podcast. Okay, well, it's real, I'm glad to be doing this. I'm, I've fallen in love with you as a daughter. Mm. I may care about the relationship here. <laughs> and a spiritual daughter, something, mm. something like that. It's been a joy reading your book on silence. Thank you. And it's starting to. I'm looking forward to seeing the film. Thank you. And uh, I'm hoping you will come to and stay in our house someday and get to know my wife. I would love that. I would love that. And with the numerous books you've written, um, you know, in co-creating, um, being a co-founder of the Catholic Peace Fellowship, uh, and being an editor for the Catholic Worker, still so many, you know, again, peg you along with these, these quote-unquote better, well-known names. But I'm curious about you, Jim, and, and how you would describe yourself and how you would describe your vocation. <laughs> oh, goodness. Oh, how do I describe myself? 
I'm a, an undergraduate student of Dorothy Day University. <laughs> I don't expect I'll ever graduate. Mm. In fact, I am a high school dropout. I think my spiritual and intellectual formation mostly has to do with things that began by leaving the United States Navy when mm. I was 19, 20 years old, 20 I guess, and uh, joining the Catholic Worker Staff in New York as a volunteer, living in communion with mm -hmm. the, in community with the rest of uh, a group of people who range from a Harvard Law School graduate to uh, street people, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. addicts and so forth. And it's been, it's everything that has happened in my life as an adult is in one way or another connected to that. But I'd also, you know, I'd look back and I think of my parents, both of whom were dissidents in American society. My parents were both communists, which meant that uh, <laughs> in the 50s when I was growing up, I was born in 1941, um, that meant being on a, a person on an edge. Mm. You know, we grew up in a black neighborhood mm -hmm, mm -hmm. where we were the minority instead of the majority, and uh, we uh, made choices which would be unusual for most Americans at that time to make. Mm -hmm living without a car, and living a very simple life. I, my parents divorced when I was a kid, but I had good relations with both of them. My mother was the primary, primary figure. She was a psychiatric social worker working at a mental hospital. It meant growing up in a climate of considerable sympathy for people who were not making it one way or another. Mm. Uh, my mother was theoretically an atheist because you were going to be a communist, that's part of the package. <laughs> But she was a Methodist atheist. My father was, of course, an atheist, too, because that was part of the package. Mm -hmm. But he was a Catholic atheist. Mm. They both had been shaped by their religious upbringing, and they never lost the, the aroma, the incense of that past. Their consciences were, had deep Judeo-Christian influences. That touched me, of course. Mm -hmm. So between Dorothy Day and my parents, I think it's not too surprising I'm sitting next to you talking about these things. Mm. Mm. Do you have any early or recent memories of an encounter with silence that, you know, essentially was maybe an encounter with God in some way? Well, I, I wake up in silence every morning. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> day begins with silence. It's, it's been silent all night long, probably. Mm. I wasn't too attentive to that particular silence, but when I wake up, I'm aware of it. The day starts in silence, mm -hmm. and uh, the silence becomes normally, not always, but normally it, it opens the door to prayer. Yeah. So prayer and silence are very connected. Sometimes the prayer is silence, mm -hmm. you know, that you're just listening to the stray noises and trying to orient yourself. What country am I in? I mean, I'm right now I'm in Toronto, Canada. I haven't ever been in Toronto before. Mm -hmm. I mean, the silence is, is Toronto silence. Mm -hmm. So you begin the day listening to Toronto silence if you happen to be here. And um, if you if you slept late, you hear the sounds of breakfast being prepared in the kitchen. If you've gotten up early, as I did this morning, you just wake up into a very quiet house and you and you're kind of nourished by the silence. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's it's not a monastery. On the other hand, <laughs> there is something monastic about it. Yeah. It's a very intent life that these two, my hosts and hostess, are living. Mm. You know, conscious, focused, hospitable. 
and it creates a kind of quasi, maybe just plain monastic smell. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and there's a beautiful rhythm to that, isn't there? You know, finding the silence in between the offbeat and the silences between is just when people li- live a rhythmic life. Yeah. You can really yeah, it's it's uh, a lot of major choices have been made by Tanya and Paul. Big mm-hmm. choices. And it has shaped the way they live, what they do, why they're here, where they, where they will be the rest of the day, where they'll be tomorrow and the next day. It has a lot to do with people who are having difficulties of one sort or another. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has to do with trying to share things that are important to them with other people to make them accessible. So, of course, it creates a climate. Mm-hmm. And the silence contains you know, traces, big traces mm-hmm. of the climate, of, the, of these choices. I'm so intrigued by the way, whenever I'm talking with you, the conversation rarely sticks to Jim, and Jim can so easily oh. talk about other people, but that's... Yes, I do like to do that. <laughs> I mean, I'd rather be on the other side of the camera than this side of the camera. Well, and, and I'm reminded of a, a beautiful quote from your book, The Root of War is Fear, um, about Thomas Merton's advice to peacemakers where you talk about how peacemaking begins with seeing. Seeing what is really going on around us. Seeing ourselves in relation to the world we are a part of. What we see and what we fail to see defines who we are and how we live our lives. So you've lived a life of seeing, Jim, and I'm curious if, if we can go on to talk a little bit about silence and social justice. And I, it seems that seeing has been a way that you've encountered the mystery in order to stand up for the things that you've stood up for and speak out and even be arrested. Well, one of the formative experiences in my life, I've been thinking about it more recently, somehow came to mind how important it was when I was a kid, about maybe 12 years old. Mm-hmm. My mother taking me from Red Bank, New Jersey, where we live, to Manhattan to visit the Museum of Modern Art. Mm-hmm because they were having a major photo exhibition called The Family of Man. Mm. Now today probably you'd find another name for it because it's a male pronoun that's supposed to suggest the whole human race. Mm-hmm. But the, the exhibition was, I don't know, two, three hundred black and white photographs suspended from the ceiling in various ways in relationship to each other, following human beings of different cultures, different races, different places, different levels of economic achievement or non-achievement. Wealth to poverty, more poverty than wealth, uh, uh, from birth to death, from love to mourning to play to labor, you know. Mm-hmm. And t- two things happened to me in that exhibition. One was I became overwhelmingly aware that uh, seeing is communion. Mm. That I didn't have that vocabulary, communion, but mm-hmm. that you, if you really look at a human being, you have the opportunity of seeing a lot. And the, the more attentive the look, the quieter the look, the more you see. Mm-hmm. And also became aware of communicating through visual imagery. As mm-hmm. is, is probably a higher level of communication, or can be, than words. Although my life has been mostly in the word world, mm-hmm. uh, I depend very much on imagery to, to do what I do. Mm-hmm. And seeing, and the books I like best that I've, I've written are actually books that have loads of photographs. Mm-hmm. Mm. Seeing, you know, and I think too. I, I, in 1964, I was privileged to be one of several people, about a dozen people, 
who took part in a retreat with Thomas Merton at the Abbey of Gethsemane. Mm-hmm. Uh, the topic was the spiritual roots of peacemaking. We were just a couple of months away from beginning the Catholic Peace Fellowship as a full-time staff project. I was going to be the first secretary. It was just a couple of months away, and the theme of the retreat was the spiritual roots of protest. Didn't, didn't you even say in your book that Merton literally put roots on his patio? Yeah, he had, he had some <laughs> he had, you know, sort of driftwood sort of yeah. roots on the patio of his hermitage. Mm-hmm. But the, the text that Merton wanted to stress in his opening remarks to, to us at 12, 13, 14 people was this uh, appeal to Jesus from a blind man that in English would be, Lord, that I might see. Mm. You know? Mm-hmm. Very urgent request, Lord, that I might see. Yeah. Merton used did it in Latin, and I can't remember the Latin at the moment. I really, it'd be nice to I sort of value the Latin words, and every now and then I can remember them. Yeah. But, it, Lord, that I might see, I, to the extent that we open our eyes and see what's going on around us, mm-hmm. it's a challenge. It so happened that one of the participants in that particular retreat was an old elderly guy, very important figure in the American peace movement in the 60s, leading figure in the anti-Vietnam War effort and the campaign to get rid of nuclear weapons and so forth, a man named A.J. Musty. And he had just had a cataract operation surgery. Mm. He was seeing as he hadn't seen Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in maybe 20 years. Yeah. Ten years anyway. And he was in a constant state of astonishment. Mm. It was like having the blind man from the gospel story, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. present. <laughs> Thought I'd drop in, you know. And he was just gazing with astonishment at the leaves, at the trees, at the roots, at the monastic environment that we were in, at the faces of each of us. He was ex- remarking on the colors. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. the excitement of seeing it's something he didn't take for granted, you know. Maybe yeah. in another year he would be back to taking it for granted. Maybe not. Maybe he'd stay permanently in this condition of being hyper alert visually. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Speaking of your, um, you said I believe seven year correspondence with Merton. Is that correct? Yeah, it was cut short by the fact that Merton died. Yeah. In December tenth of December nineteen sixty eight. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. You know, a lot of people will look at this piece that's or this letter that he wrote you that's that's often referenced as letter to a young activist and many people have heard you know some of the portions of this where where merton says and then this do not depend on the hope of results when you're doing this sort of work you've taken on essentially an apostolic work you may have to face the fact that your work will be apparently worthless and even achieve no results at all if not perhaps result in the opposite of what you expected and then he goes on and on but then at the end he says it is the reality of personal relationships that saves everything. But here's my focus on this, Jim. You facilitated this letter. Your letter of anguish prompted this now quote-unquote famous response. And written the day after um, Valentine's Day, you said to Merton that prompted this letter, you said, I confess to you that I am in a rather bleak mood. For one thing, I'm exhausted with the ideological discussions Earlier today, I began to type out a few thoughts on your paper concerning protest. I was going to say that I think such words as pacifist ought to be forever thrown into the trash basket, and that indeed we ought to try to find new vocabulary for getting across our ideas to the public. But the question comes up, as I work on such a response, who is listening? 
Yes, you for one. You will read my comments, and perhaps in some way they will alter your thoughts on some sub subject or strengthen them. Perhaps it will even inspire you to write something. Yet even if you do, who is listening? Your words will be dutifully noted by some. Those Christians who care about baptism and membership in the body of Christ may be influenced by your meditations. But meanwhile, murder goes on, without interruption. This appalls me to such a degree that I get weary writing it down. Bomb after bomb after bomb slides away from the bomb bays. For every sentence in this letter, a dozen innocents will have died today in Vietnam. The end of the war is beyond imagination. And the reason I wanted to read that is because, again, you know, we so often look at Merton's response, but I believe your letter is just as poignant and just as relevant today, too. Innocent lives are being... Yeah, yeah. Killed by the, war right now, yeah. You're a very gifted photographer. I don't need to, you don't need to hear that from me. You've heard mm. from a lot of people. Your published work is quite impressive as a photographer. Mm, thank you. And I was looking at some pictures you took yesterday. You know, the pictures yesterday. You saw, I looked yesterday at pictures you had taken of the um, women marching. Mm. You know? Yeah. The, what is it called? Uh, I mean, I live in Holland, so I don't remember. Hashtag. Oh, the Me Too movement. Yeah, okay, yes, yes. Me Too. Mm hmm. And just thinking, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of women were out that day marching, carrying all kinds of signs, some mm -hmm. of them extremely moving, some of them very funny, some of them yeah. poignant. Yeah. Uh, and, and probably many women who were there have, since the march, experienced the same kind of abusive treatment that they received before the march. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, or maybe even worse, you know, because some guys will get into a highly defensive in your face kind of mood. Yeah. Or you become more sensitive to it, more aware of it, so you become more vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Once the march is over, things aren't better. They may even seem worse. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of world it is. We we do something, we protest something, and it seems, you know, a month later, if it hadn't happened, it wouldn't make any difference. Mm -hmm. Things are as they were, and they will stay that way forever, and it's going to be hell today, hell tomorrow, and hell the next day. Right. And... Uh, and any, anything we do is a waste of time. And that's, of course, the message we're supposed to receive. What you're doing is a waste of time. Mm. Anything that the institutions that promote violence and injustice uh, want to do is to make us feel powerless. Mm -hmm. We are mm -hmm. absolutely powerless. And any protest we make is just a waste of time. You come to Washington and tie up the streets, it's a waste of time. Raise up some signs, waste of time. Mm. Protest, waste of time. You know. Mm -hmm. Uh, actually, it's not a waste of time. The truth of the matter is, it does make a difference. It's just that we often don't get... It doesn't happen fast. And sometimes it doesn't even happen in our lifetime. Sometimes we... It's so slow. The iceberg is so big. So much of it is hidden. So much of it is beneath the waterline. Mm -hmm. That watching it shrink is, is not easy for us. We live 60, 70, 80, maybe even 90, 100 years. Mm -hmm. But for... You know, pick up a pebble on the beach... It's hundreds of millions of years old. Mm. You know, it's a different time scale. Right, right. Uh, so I think Merton helped me to realize something which has been life-saving. That is, that it, it, shape your life on truth. Live it as courageously as you can, mm -hmm. as joyfully as you can. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, count on God making some good use of it. What you do is not wasted. But you may not have the satisfaction of seeing the kind of results that you're hoping for. Mm -hmm. Maybe you will. Maybe you'll be lucky. Maybe something will happen. But you can't count on it. And you can't say, my actions are dependent on quick consequences, positive consequences. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I remember a, a line from Thomas Merton's, I believe, message to poets, where he says something to the effect of a hope that rests on calculation has lost all innocence. That's <laughs> good. Please write that down for me later yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. Um, have to memorize that. Yeah, and just this idea that, you know, we live in a society, you know, and especially in America right now, there's a, so many people having conversations with the hope of conversion as opposed to having conversations to love people and to care about people. Yeah, uh, and also we, we live in a society in which everything is being sold constantly all the time, mm-hmm. including what we're, we, we become salesmen too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We, we become a herd yeah. of salesmen. I'm selling peace, you're selling uh, women's liberation, she's selling a uh, mm-hmm. better diet, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all the different things. It, it isn't actually what we're doing, isn't, ideally it isn't selling, it's sharing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the way we share it is, first of all, by modeling mm. what we want, what we can, you yeah. know. Uh, and not modeling self-consciously as if it's looking at ourselves in a mirror and trying to get, you know, look right. Mm-hmm. But just saying, if, if, for example, I'm going to be a, trying to be some kind of Christian, uh, the Beatitudes and the Works of Mercy would be really important. <laughs> you know, really, really important. Yeah. Uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, etc. Yeah. Uh, you know, what you did to the least person, you did to me. These these values, yeah. these goals, these shaping words, these mysterious, powerful words would influence the way we live, the choices we make. Mm-hmm. And we become little by little a translation of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, unique. It's not because we're trying to sell it to anybody, but on the other hand, it is contagious. <laughs> you know, yeah. so. with, with what you were saying earlier about, you know, essentially these things that we are doing, these things that we are attempting in creating change, that they're not, you know, they're essentially not in vain. And in some of your work, you've talked about the debilitating nature of fear. And you said that fear is useful only when it serves as an alarm clock, a device that wakes us up briefly ringing. When fear takes over, it tends to rob us creativity, resourcefulness, and freedom. And you also yeah. said to Thomas Merton, at the core of what is sane in our society, I think you will find the pacifist movement constantly reminding the populace that life is sacred, that justice, not vengeance, is our job. Do you think there's a sense of fatigue among activists today because of the amount of fear-driven media and fear being poured into our lives? A lot of my life has been spent as a journalist, sometimes working for secular news organizations, daily newspapers and things like that, Mm -hmm. magazine editing and so forth. One of the proverbs that you learn as a journalist right away is that uh, if it bleeds, it leads. Mm. Page one belongs to bloodshed. Mm. Uh, Page, you know, if there's page 48, maybe if there's room on the, you know, the Lifesavers will be mentioned in passing. Mm. Sometimes it, it, sometimes it doesn't. You, sometimes you actually make page one with a lifesaver, like the policeman here in Toronto who didn't kill right. Uh, right. the guy who killed uh, passersby with his rented van. You know? Right, that becomes page one because we're so unused to somebody not being killed in those in those circumstances. So, mm-hmm. be, but mo- normally, if you want to be on page one, you need to kill somebody, mm. <laughs> you know, or yeah. threaten to do it if you're president. Of the, right. Some, Major power, yeah. So it, it gets, you know, it gets, it gets, it can be debilitating to live in a society in which fear is constantly being generated. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we turn on the television and 
get to the news reports and it's going to be things which make us nervous if not afraid. Uh, we open the newspaper, if we read a newspaper, and we've run into a lot of, you know, this kind of thing. We listen to our friends talking about what's happened yesterday and what terrorist incident occurred. And uh, we, we think it could be me, you know, the airplane crashes, could be me. Mm -hmm. It's a nightmare. Yeah. How do you get out of the nightmare? That's, that's the, you know, how do you free yourself from that? I was going to say, I hope you're not really asking me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would be very interested to hear your answer even more than mine, because I know what mine is, and I don't know yours yet. Mm. But I see you working on it. Mm. That's why you're doing this thing. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Since I've been getting the joy of spending time with you these last few days, you've talked a lot about the Eucharist. And I was touched in your book, again, The Root of War, is Fear, about uh, Thomas Merton's advice to, to peacemakers. Yeah. You said that Merton had described uh, the Eucharistic liturgy as a kind of ritual dance at the crossroads, a place of encounter for every condition of people and every degree of faith, yeah. and, and also an intersection linking time and eternity. So you've said this, I mean, I've heard you say several times this, you know, over the last few days that without the Eucharist, you'd starve. And there's a depth to that when you say that, and I'm just curious how you think that communion with God and that, and that sacrament has empowered you to live so deeply in community. I live my Eucharistic life for these last 20-some uh, 20, 20 years, uh, 30 years, in the Orthodox Church, although I still regard myself as a kind of Catholic, you know. I sometimes joke about being a Catholic on loan to the Orthodox Church. Uh, <laughs> In both communions, uh, in fact, we call them communions, mm -hmm. uh, the Eucharist is the absolute center of the life of the community. The, 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 the thing that holds the community together, we come together, ideally at least once a week, to celebrate the mystery, and that's the Greek word, mysterion, mm -hmm. the mystery of Christ's presence. Not just the memory, not just say we're going to get a postcard that we saved from some years ago in which he was still alive, you mm -hmm, know, but mm -hmm. that he is present. And he is present in a lot of ways. It's not just Eucharistic presence, but the Eucharist reminds us in the most vivid way possible that we're participating in the life and blood and breath of Jesus. And that it's not a, just a nice idea or a ambition or something. It's an event. It's a fact. It's it's. Familiar and unfamiliar at the same time. And then your whole life becomes, you know, a potentially, to the extent that you open yourself to this mystery, a, a constant preparation and a constant thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. You're doing both at the same time. You're preparing for the next communion. You're in the gratitude for the last communion. They, mm -hmm. they, they, they touch each other. They run together. Um, and little by little, the bread and wine become your blood and your breath and your body and your mm. choices. And it's not something you, even you can't, you can to some extent, you can do it alone, but actually you need a community. Yeah, yeah. You know. And would you mind telling maybe a story about, I, you had mentioned that you and Dan Berrigan would, would, <laughs> would, uh, yeah. 
have the Eucharist together every one, every, once a week for a while yeah. there? Well, we had, we had been at a conference that brought us to Prague for, to meet with Eastern Christians, Western and Eastern Christians concerned about peacemaking in the summer of 1964. I was working for a newspaper in New York at the time, and Dan was on sabbatical. He was, when I got to Paris, where he was staying at the time, we joined each other, and we went on together from Paris. We went to Rome, met with some people at the Vatican. We then went to, uh, to Prague. And we made a decision together that we would, once we got back to America, start a Catholic Peace Fellowship. That is to bring Catholics together to oppose the Vietnam War and to become objectors to that war, to refuse to take part in it, conscientious objectors. Mm -hmm. uh, which was what we did. And we, uh, back in the 1st of January 1965, we actually had a, I had quit my newspaper job and Dan was working in a Jesuit magazine in New York. And we would get together once a week normally, to celebrate a simple, very simple Eucharist and to make plans for the coming, you know, look at the correspondence that had come in, et cetera, et cetera, you know, mm -hmm. what are we going to do, how are we going to respond, here's an invitation to come and speak somewhere, et cetera, what are we gonna, how are we going to do this, who's going to do it. Uh, it always began with this very simple Mass, mm -hmm. and uh, Dan would put a piece of bread on a plate and a, and a glass of wine and uh, We'd read through the readings together, you know, we would have a little silent period uh, to reflect, first in silence and then to share our thoughts aloud. We would pray for people we knew needed prayer. We would, of course, begin the liturgy, you know, thinking about what we need to repent of, what sins are weighing us down. And then share the bread and wine after Dan's consecrated. Now, he got in trouble for doing this. <laughs> it wasn't that, you know, it wasn't quite by the book uh, to have little English language masses in your mm. little tiny apartment and it disturbed one of the superiors in the community and he finally ordered Dan to stop doing this and Dan did his best to oblige the person because he was very strict about it and the, in the Jesuits you have an, a, a, a discipline and an obedience that's involved. But we got to a certain point in the our attempt to skip the mass and move on to quote the business to, uh, he just he suddenly got up, he went, he got the piece of bread, got the glass of wine, put it in, in a little tiny table between the two of us, well, the three of us actually, Tom Cornell was there also. We could see that Dan is intently, he's going to do the Mass again, but he got to the canon prayer where the gifts, the bread and wine are consecrated, and he was simply silent, prolonged silence. And finally he said, Mm. Let the Lord make of this what He will. Mm. Now, that is not your normal canon prayer, consecration prayer. <laughs> but you know. <laughs> yeah. Under yeah. the circumstances, that was no question in my mind, and I don't think there was in Dan's or Tom's, that we were, we had in front of us the body and blood of Christ. Yeah. I've every now and then run into similar stories in Russia from the Soviet time, people in prison, somehow having Eucharist together even though there was no priest, mm. you know. People in Albania celebrating the Eucharist in the middle of the night, no male priest, you know, an old woman. It's just 
just holding these things and saying, if I were a priest, I would say. Mm. Our conversation will return after this brief moment of silence. Please take a breath with us and join us for this 30 seconds of silence. There's a couple, a couple other questions I have. One is you've also mentioned crossing paths with um, Henry Nouwen. Yes. And I'm more familiar with Henry Nouwen than actually than I am with Dorothy Day, and um, you, you knew both of them. But I sense this common thread between them and between many people that live this life of deep spirituality, deep connectivity to humanity, this thread of loneliness. And I wonder about your experience with these two and your experience in your own life. Do you think that loneliness is a part of, of a deeply spiritual life? And, and how can we turn that into prayer? Or what's your experience with, with that? Well, in my case, I have experienced, everybody has experienced lots of loneliness. But at the moment, this particular period of my life, it's been amazingly free of loneliness is because I'm mm. married to a person who's with whom I couldn't be in a deeper communion. Mm. You know. Shout um. out to Nancy. Hello, <laughs> 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 Yeah. But it has been a long process getting to that place. Mm -hmm. And even in marriage itself in a very long process getting to that place because I mean I brought a lot of fear into the relationship. I failed in marriage. Uh, and I was—I felt kind of doomed. Uh, I never I was something, you know. I was never going to get married, and that was not really married, you mm -hmm. know, capital M. Um, you'd be in relationships, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> just a little bit different. And uh, so, for currently, all I can tell you is uh, loneliness is not the immediate problem, but it has been at many times in my life. Mm -hmm. And I, I think for Dorothy Day, for example, uh, it's remarkable the choice that she made for the title of her autobiography, one of the most yeah. important books I've ever read, The Long Loneliness. Yeah. And she wasn't kidding. She didn't mean that, it, that it, it, she stopped being lonely at a certain point because she became Catholic, because she was part of the Catholic work, or because she lived in community. You know, community. No, she was still lonely. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. And... I think Henry Nouwen, we know from his writings and from anybody who spent any time with him, he was a very lonely guy. Yeah. Reaching out all the time for communion and connection, but oftentimes feeling abandoned, you know. He was an ultra-sensitive human being, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And if he didn't hear from you when he was expecting to, or you hadn't written in a while, <laughs> he could suddenly feel abandoned, mm. you know. And I think a lot of people have this. I, I don't think there's yeah. such a thing as a person who is insensitive. <laughs> I don't yeah. think there is so, any human being that is insensitive. And, uh, it might have been more extreme in Henry's case than most, but it, not a lot more. Yeah, yeah. 
And when did you cross paths with him? It was at Yale, you said? He was teaching at Yale, and I had just gotten out of prison. I was part of a community, an anti-war activity had brought me to prison for okay. a little, little more than a year. I was part of a community called Emmaus House in East Harlem, okay. New York City, Manhattan. And Henry wanted, he was teaching a course on Thomas Merton at Yale. Mm. And he knew somehow that I had known Merton. Mm-hmm. And he was able to contact me at Emmaus House and say, would I please come up to New Haven and speak to his students about what Merton was like as a person? Because we're reading the books. Mm-hmm. But, you know, nobody here has actually, well, Henry had briefly met him, but, but I mean, just, hello, 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 you know. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, no, no real exchange of thoughts. Uh, so I said, sure, of course I'd come up. And we discovered that we had uh, the makings of a friendship pretty instantly. And, and I would come back at least once a year for what, either to talk about Merton or do something mm-hmm. with Henry. And when he came to Holland, which was his native country, uh, you know, where I was living since 1988, he would you know, come up and visit. Or I, on one occasion, brought me down to his father's house. His mother had died by that time. And, mm-hmm. and I stayed in his family home. We, we spent a, a lot of time together. When I was going through the failure of my previous marriage, Henry was one of the people who did the most to help me. I, to de- I was devastatingly lonely mm-hmm. and felt overwhelmed by failure. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 didn't, I wasn't suicidal, but I wouldn't have objected to a bus you know, running me down mm-hmm. if I could do it without taking blame for the bus. <laughs> I was just really... I, the kids in my work and... This, and I, and the obligations of Christianity kept me going. <laughs> you know, but Henry would call up about once a week mm. and just chat. Mm. You know, just how's it going? What's happening? What are you doing? Who are you seeing? Mm. Uh, and at Easter time, that first Easter, uh, he and he arranged with his travel agent. He said, "I've, I've, I've contacted my travel agent. You will be receiving a call, and just let us know what what flight you want. I want you to come and spend mm. some time with me." So, another thing I'd like to discuss, if you don't mind, is your relationship with, with Thich Nhat Hanh and the ways in which your relationship influenced one another. And I think, like we were talking about earlier, seeing one another and having conversations with one another, along with our differences, is so important. And you, you, you've had an incredible friendship with him. Yeah. Can you share a little bit about that? Well, it was a, a it was a very funny beginning. I was working for the Fellowship of Reconciliation as, at that time, I was director of Vietnam program. Okay. And Thich Nhat Hanh had come over from from Vietnam as a guest of Cornell University and then of the Fellowship of Reconciliation. And we were responsible for helping him to meet with people in senior government positions, newspaper editors, publishers, journalists members of Congress, senators, so that they could hear a living voice from Vietnam talking about what the war was doing to ordinary people, the peasants. Mm-hmm. The, uh, you know, this is a war in which no one knows exactly how many people were killed, but the estimate is around three million. Mm. And this is in the relatively early days of that slaughter. And our, our hope was that Nhat Hanh, with his very pure, unpolitical voice, could, be, could touch people mm-hmm. that might be impervious to more, quote, political, end quote, voices. 
which I think, in fact, was to some extent a, a fact that he did make a difference. One evening, I was asked at the last minute to, to accompany him on one of his events. Mm -hmm. I had previously, I'd been in the same room with him, I'd listened to him, I'd heard him answer questions, maybe even some of my questions, but I had no, really no intimate contact with him. But I had recently, in, at a university in the Middle West, been invited to try LSD, uh, hallucinogenic drug. Now, it's not, <laughs> I'm not a druggie, you know, drugs are not my thing. I can't wait to hear where the story is going. And uh, <laughs> I decided, well, you know, LSD does open up certain, quote, gates of perception, end quote. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It certainly does. And uh, you, you, if you experience nothing else, you find out a lot about what's going on behind the curtain in your unconscious, mm -hmm. um, how your mind works. And people had described it as a kind of shortcut to enlightenment. Well, I, I, I doubted that that was true, but I wanted to ask him. And I said, I'm never going to have a chance to ask a Zen master again in my life. Mm. I'll never probably have an intimate contact with a Zen master. So here's a chance to find out somebody who knows about enlightenment, mm -hmm. whether there's anything, any connection between what I experienced and enlightenment, capital E. <laughs> And so I decided, and I said, well, he, probably he'll be very irritated. He said, how dare you ask such a question? But I said, well, you know, there's nothing to lose. Maybe he will be uh, able to give me an answer. And in any event, I will be annoyed with myself if I don't raise mm -hmm. this. He was fascinated. You know, we left the meeting we were at early. He didn't care for it very much, neither did I. We went down to a little uh, Chinese restaurant around the corner, sat drinking tea, and uh, I told him about this, and he just listened with absolute amazement and attention because <laughs> he had never met anybody in the peace movement so far who was interested in enlightenment yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was quite surprised and the, 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 it turned out that there was very little connection between what I experienced in enlightenment but that was uh, uh, what it really did was open the doors of a relationship mm. and then after that day uh, he asked my the organization I was working for if I would normally be the person to accompany him on his travels Mm. So we traveled all over the place together. And and later, uh, when he was settled in France, I was frequently with him in France for longer and shorter periods. Mm -hmm. Living with him both in Paris and in, uh, at first a community called the Sweet Potatoes Tiny. I mean, a community is hardly you know, maybe five, six people. And then a larger community, which has become well-known, the something to do with plums. Plum Village, mm. you know, Plum mm. Village. I would like to mention uh, your website, which is jimandnancyforrest.com. Dot com. Okay. Because um, there's some great, great posts on there. Yeah, and, the, the, it, and speaking of Yadhan, for example, if you were to go to the Jim's Essay tab on that mm. site, and you'd find loads and loads of things that yeah. I've written or interviews and so forth. But there's a, there are several things having to do with Yadhan, including a, an entry called... Uh, Learning from Thich Nhat Hanh. And mm -hmm. Nancy and I have just keep adding stories as they come to mind mm -hmm. you know, about experiences with Thai. Before I met you, Jim, I had come across your website and was reading the piece, I believe it's called The Cup in Your Hands. Is that oh, right? Oh, right. That's one of the Thich Nhat Hanh yeah. pieces. Yeah. About washing the dishes to wash <laughs> the dishes. Yeah. yeah, I was living at that time with Paris, in Paris in a community near the Parc de Sceaux in the southeast of Paris. Mm. And it, we took turns washing the dishes, of course. And one, one evening it was my turn to wash the dishes. Mm. 
At the time, I would say I would never regard it as a great honor to wash the dishes <laughs> under any circumstances. Although I did it, of course, many, many, many times. You know, from the beginning in high school, working in, you know, in cafes and things like that. But never a great honor. You just did it because it had to be done, or maybe it's how you were making your money. So I was in the kitchen washing what seemed to me infinite number of dirty dishes <laughs> in a very small, steamy space listening with my, the best I could to the very interesting conversation that was going on in the living room where there were a couple of guests who had come to ask Nyadan questions, which I found very interesting. And he was answering, but his voice is very soft and gentle, and you get the occasional word or phrase, but not really, the, the, hard to put it together in a meaningful way. And I was in a state of considerable irritation, as if smoke were coming out of my body, you know, dark mm. smoke, and Yanhan <laughs> appeared at a certain point at the door of the kitchen and said, Jim, why are you washing the dishes? <laughs> you know, I was, uh, I did my best to think of what would be an appropriate Zen answer, <laughs> and the best I could come up with, which wasn't much, was I'm washing the dishes to make them clean. Well, which is true, of course, I was, but, uh, but that didn't go very deep, and uh, and then he said, Jim, you should wash the dishes to wash the dishes. Now, that was a real Zen answer from a Zen master, but it meant nothing to me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I was not about to be mollified by that. You know, <laughs> um, to wash the dishes, to wash the dishes. Okay, Zen Buddhism, you know. And he could see that that had not untied the knot. Mm -hmm. And then he said, Jim, I want you to wash each dish as if it were the baby Jesus. Mm. Yeah. That was good advice. Yeah. And as a Christian, that was a challenge. Right. <laughs> right. And yet I never tried to get me out of Christianity, not at all. Mm -hmm. and, and in this case, he revealed how much he understood and appreciated in Christianity. Right. Uh, and the challenge of seeing life in a way, in a sacramental way. Yeah. That everything is an opportunity. Yeah. And dirty dishes are as much an opportunity to pray as being on your knees in the Cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris. Maybe better. Yeah, yeah. One of the things you had said about monasticism is you said monastic formation, both Buddhist and Christian, has much to do with discovering the significance of insignificant moments in the most routine activities. Yeah. And I think that story sums that up so well. And just also the, the, the relationship in that story is so deep, the brotherhood. The brotherhood that you shared with him, for him to respond like that is just, it's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, I was very lucky. I've had good teachers. I have a very little formal education and a great deal of mentorship. Mm, yeah. Dorothy Day University, I recommend it. <laughs> so, just a, a couple more questions, hopefully easy ones. I'm curious if you, if someone... We're saying, I'm new to Jim Forrest. What book should I read? Oh, what would you say? Oh, I don't know. I mean, it would depend on who asked the question, really. Yeah. Um, do I have a favorite book? I, I like my children's books very much, and I wish I had a copy of one of them with me. There's children's books about St. Francis, and not about St. Francis, that's in my mind to do, about St. Uh, <laughs> George and the Dragon, and there's one about uh, St. Nicholas. Mm. There's... There's one about Mother Maria Skotsova, a Parisian 
Orthodox nun who died in a concentration camp after having saved thousands of, well, maybe thousands, we don't know how many, lots and lots of Jews mm -hmm. during the German occupation. Mm -hmm. And there are adult books. One of them, as you mentioned, is Praying with Icons. I think that's a good... Icons can be a school of seeing, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and they're not just... It's not just primitive Christian art that becomes interesting insofar as it brings upon the Botticellis and the Michelangelo's. The biographies of Dorothy Day, Thomas Merton, Daniel Berrigan, I think they're, each of them is full of incredible stories and lots and lots of direct quotations from these people. So they're a good way of meeting three of the most interesting people of the 20th century. The Ladder of the Beatitudes is a you know kind of crash course in basic Christianity. You're reminding me of the, um, the excerpt you sent me from uh, Praying with the Icons. Um, kind of about that reflects oh, silence. Oh, right, the right. The, yeah. yeah. I mean, we, there's a chapter on the qualities of icons, one of which is silence. Mm -hmm. I think we're used, we're used to a more narrative, illustrative kind of painting that tells stories, and the t telling is the verb. You know, we can almost, there are paintings you can stand in front of and you can hear mm -hmm. the painting, not just see it. Whereas with icons, you don't get that. You get this very two dimensional world, very silent world. Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, I think, from the, in terms of your own book on silence, you know, you describe very exactly with wonderful distinctions the different kinds of silence mm -hmm. there are. You know, there's deadly silence, there's, mm -hmm. there's homicidal silence, mm -hmm. there's toxic there's silence, icy, icy silence, toxic silence, mm -hmm. but there is also warm silence. Mm -hmm. Uh, there is the silence of a piece of, of a loaf of bread baking in the oven, you know, and mm. it's a special silence. Wow, that's a beautiful thought. Uh, I like that. And there's the silence of the incarnate word. Mm. Uh, St. John the Evangelist had a disciple named St. Ignatius, uh, who was the first bishop of Antioch and who was martyred. And on the way from Antioch to Rome, where he was fed to the lions, he wrote a series of letters which come down to us as early testaments of what the early church was like. And he has this remarkable sentence in one of those letters, he who possesses in truth the word of Jesus can hear even in silence. Mm. And that's a very dear sentence to me. He who possesses in truth the word of Jesus can hear even in silence. Mm. And I think without silence we don't hear anything. <laughs> yeah. Wow, without silence, we don't hear anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, okay. Well, I mean, we could go on forever, and I hope we do. Yes, well, let's work it forever. But, yeah, 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 let's work it forever. Come in and visit us and uh, interview Nancy. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, last question we often, we try to ask everybody, do you have a silence hero? Silence hero. Silence hero. Someone that's, you know, really taught you what it means or the depths of silence for you? Or... Mine's Thomas Merton. So. Yeah, well, I sort of immediately thought of Thomas Merton, but, I, yeah. but then, you know, it's ironic. Merton lived a silent life. He was in a community in which silence was the, the language of community. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Silence is spoken here, as was said mm -hmm. one of the signs. Mm -hmm. you know? Uh, but of course he's famous for what he wrote his, his words were written you could say the words came out of silence and in that sense yes of course Merton is one of the leading spokesmen mm -hmm. of silence mm -hmm. spokesman of silence being a paradoxical term yeah. but you can't be a spokesperson of silence um, 
Nathan, of course, lives a very deeply silent mm. life. Well, now especially because he's lost the ability to speak. He had a major stroke, That's barely right. survived. That's right. He's, every word he speaks is a word of deep silence. Mm. And the community receives that silence. Mm-hmm. I think of, you know, dead people are very important in my life. They are living presences, but they are silent presences. Mm-hmm. But without them, I'd be with, you know, a very poor person. Mm. I think of the priest of our parish in Amsterdam, Father Sergei Ovsianikov, is now in this deep silence. He died at Christmas time. But for me, he was a hero. Mm-hmm. And your friend, um, Dan Berrigan, died about two years ago? Two years ago. Just in a few days, it'll be the second anniversary. Okay. Yeah. And when I last saw Dan, he was lying in bed, and I thought I was the first one to find his dead body because he was so still and so silent. Mm. I could hardly detect the beating of blood in his vein as I looked looked just to see, is he alive? Mm -hmm. And, of course, the last part of his life was largely one of silence. Mm Mm-hmm. He would point, mm. you know. The day I was with him, he was still speaking, but not long afterward, the speaking stopped. Mm. But he continued to be there. <laughs> I mean, as Dan Berrigan, yeah. his minus words, he was still very much himself. Yeah. Jim Forrest, absolutely wonderful to have you join us today. And like I said, we could we could easily go on forever, but I trust that, We've covered enough of, to at least give our audience a taste of who you are, apart from these names that I'm sure many have heard of. So thank you so much for joining, and thank you so much for being a friend. Thank you for your film. Although I haven't seen it yet, I'm looking forward to it. Mm-hmm. And I, but I have been reading your book, and it mm-hmm. means a lot to me. And it's, it's a blessing mm-hmm. to be among your friends. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Encountering Silence podcast. If you enjoy our ongoing conversations about the beauty of silence and its meaning in our lives, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or at our website, EncounteringSilence.com. You can subscribe to our email list at our website, connect with us on social media, on Twitter at Silence Podcast, or on Facebook at Encountering Silence. And please visit Patreon.com slash Encountering Silence. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash encountering silence to become a patron of this podcast your financial support will allow us to continue creating new episodes and spreading the message of how vital silence is for our social spiritual and physical well-being <laughs>